If you will join me this morning in Galatians chapter 4. We continue in our series through Paul's letter to the Galatians. This morning we are in chapter 4. We will be looking at verses 8 through 11. The title of our sermon is, Did I Labor in Vain? And our key words for our worshipers in training are slave, labor, and vain. Well, from 1939 to 1945, World War II was waged between the Axis powers made up of Germany, Italy, Japan, Hungary, Romania, and Bulgaria and the Allies, made up of the United States, Britain, France, and 14 other countries. On June 6, 1944, was the famous D-Day. It was the Allied invasion of Normandy, France, in what was called Operation Overlord. It was the largest seaborne invasion known in history. The operation began the invasion of German-occupied Western Europe and led to the liberation of France from Nazi control. And following D-Day, the Axis powers knew that they were, for all practical purposes, completely and totally defeated. They knew the question was not if, but when they would finally be compelled to lay down their arms. But on they fought after D-Day with whatever weapons they still had for almost another year, killing hundreds of thousands of Allied soldiers. And interestingly, more American and British soldiers died after D-Day than before. And this really is an apt illustration to us to understand exactly what it could mean when we say that we believe that Satan and his evil powers of the world have been defeated by Christ on the cross. It doesn't take a scholar to understand that there is evil all around us. And indeed, Satan and his minions and other evil powers are actively working day by day to bring people to ruin to destroy families and churches, to discourage the people of God, to upset anything that would bring any kind of honor to Christ whatsoever. So how can we say anything whatsoever of defeat? How could anyone say that the cross had any real impact on Satan's activity in the world at all? Well, we need to think of it in the same way as the Axis powers of World War II, defeated, undeniably, unmistakably, completely and totally defeated. And yet, the fight continued. And as for Satan and the evil powers of the supernatural world, their fight continues, even though their ultimate defeat is already declared and has already been secured by the Creator the sustainer, the judge of all things. In fact, we can say that although the cross defeated Satan and the powers, they have done more harm to people in history since that time of defeat than before. But they were defeated nonetheless. And the final manifestation of that defeat will come one day in the future. 
Satan and all the supernatural powers of evil were shown their final end at the cross. But they still hold on to some of their weapons and some of their power. They are alive and well among enemies of the church, orchestrating their nefarious attacks on true religion and the forces of righteousness. They were lurking behind Jewish and Roman authorities who killed Jesus. In Paul's day, he certainly saw them lurking behind Roman and Jewish officials who continue to hound and persecute Christian believers. So the real enemies of the Christians are not just people. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Their real foes were spiritual. The same kind of invisible force that afflicted Jews for centuries, fallen evil forces conspiring against God's people and God's kingdom. Now, as we've walked thus far through Paul's letter to the Galatians, he has pointed out the deception and false teaching that the Christians in Galatia had been ensnared by and have fallen victim to. But we're getting to a point now where Paul really takes aim at what's going on behind the scenes. What is going on in all of this supernaturally? What is going on in the unseen realm where the people of God are still being afflicted by the defeated foes they once followed? Things get very interesting in our text this morning. If you're using one of our blue ESV Bibles, you can find your place on page 974 to follow along. We're looking this morning at Galatians chapter 4, and we will be looking at verses 8 through 11. Let's read together, beginning in verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be, you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. The first thing I want us to see this morning in verses 8 through 10 is that apart from a relationship with the one true God, all men are enslaved to gods of their own choosing. Now, this will take a bit of explanation, so I hope you'll track with me through the text. We have to remember, as always, the big picture of the Galatian situation. Remember, the Galatians are Christians. They've come out of a Greek pagan background and are now falling under the influence of the Judaizers who were telling them, if you're really going to be acceptable to God, you cannot just believe in Jesus Christ. That's not enough. You have to obey Jewish ceremonial law. You have to follow dietary restrictions. You have to practice circumcision. Jesus isn't enough. And so in that context, Paul says this sort of shocking thing to them when he proclaims, if that's the road you're going to walk down, 
following after the Judaizers, you are walking into a slavery to the non-gods. So who are these non-gods? We see in verse 8, Formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those by nature who are not gods. Literally non-gods. Who are these non-gods that Paul is talking about? In the Greek world, there was a god for everything. Every element of creation, every activity of man had a specific god. So, there was a God behind earth and behind fire, behind water and the sun and the moon and the stars and the land and agriculture and wine and food and on and on and on we could go. Farmers sacrificed to the God of agriculture. Sailors prayed to the God of the sea. There was Ares, the God of war, and Aphrodite, the God of sexual love and beauty, and everyone's favorite God, Bacchus, the God of the party. But what eventually happens in that situation is that everyone has their own God. And these are the non-gods of verse 8 and the elementary principles of the world mentioned in verse 9. Now, admittedly, this is a difficult uh, translation, and almost every English Bible that we have is going to state all of these things a little bit differently with the words that are used. But these non-gods of verse 8 relate to these elementary principles of verse 9. It is a Greek word that is called stoicheia, and I'm going to use that several times today, so you know what I'm talking about. It's the non-gods, it is the elementary principles, stoicheia. Now, what makes this difficult is that it can have a few different meanings. So we have to look at it all in context of what Paul is saying. I'm not going to go through all the possibilities, but I want to point out how this fits into the flow of thought. Remember, again, we mentioned briefly last week, this is the same line of thought that we saw in chapter 3 when Paul told the Galatians that they are bewitched. They are under a powerful supernatural force, a a satanic spell of sorts. In other words, yes, they're buying into the false teaching of the Judaizers, but it wasn't just the Judaizers who were leading the Galatians astray. There was something even more powerful at work that they were continuing to turn back to. What were they turning back to? Stoicheia the spirits behind every created thing that they worshipped. Every basic created thing had a God. Or to use Paul's language from back in verse 3 and here in verse 9, the elementary principles of the world all had a God. In other words, anything can be worshipped. And we know that's true, right? Anything can be treated as God. Anything can become a foundation of your religious practice. We see it all the time. We see it in our own lives. We see it in the lives of others. And here's the reality. If you are not worshiping Yahweh, you're worshiping something or someone else who is your God. In the truest sense, there is no such thing as an unbeliever. There is no real such thing as a person who is irreligious or secular. 
You either worship the one true and living God or you worship the God behind something else, whatever it is you desire to give yourself over to. So you either believe God or you believe something else is as God and isn't the God who can save you. And we know this is a rebellion of God, uh, against God. It's an absolute rejection of what God has called us to because the very first of all Ten Commandments is, you shall have no other gods before me. Why does God say that? Because it is the tendency of every man's heart to turn to another God. And this is at the heart of what all of Scripture teaches. You are what you worship. You take on the characteristics of whatever it is that you worship. So when we think of that in terms of Christianity, we say, as the Apostle Paul says numerous times in his letters, that we are becoming like Christ. We are being made into the image of his Son. We are taking on a Christ-likeness about us. But what's happening before we become Christians? Or what happens when, as Christians, our worship is diverted away from the true God to a God of our own choosing? We become more like that God. So this has some really serious implications for us. I think if I sat down with some of you this morning and said, hey, let's talk about your life. And it was brought out for a time now that you've been filled with bitterness. You're lying about things all the time. You're bored with Christ and his church. You're lacking in generosity. You're being selfish. And then I ask you, why do you think that is? It is likely that you would say something like, well, because I'm a sinner, because I'm weak, because I'm flawed. Now, of course, all of that is true, right? But here's what happens to us. We say that, and when we say that, what we're communicating is, I'm a sinner, which means I'm powerless. I can't do anything about it. So that thing that's true about all of us being sinners can actually sort of become a cop-out. It's our way out. But here's what we're not admitting to at that point. We're not admitting to the reality of what's actually going on because we usually don't get it. We're blinded by it, so we don't see it, and we can't communicate it. Again, you are what you worship. You're becoming more and more like who or what you give yourself over to. And anything we give ourselves over to that is not the true God is going to lead to bitterness, to anger, to distrust, to selfishness and pride, and on and on. Because only God, as God, can impart grace and patience and love and selflessness and mercy and peace and understanding. So here's a big lesson for us from the Galatians. We've seen they're just blowing it left and right, aren't they? They're essentially rejecting the most basic foundational truth of the Christian faith in the gospel. And instead, they're listening to and following through with a lot of practices that the Judaizers have been laying down before them. It's all completely and totally opposed to the gospel. So what does Paul say? He tells them, 
You're enslaved to non-gods. You're enslaved to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. You're going back to what you knew before, and so you're not living a life upon the love and grace of God. You're living a life upon the legal structures and powers and principalities that you have decided to assign power to in your life. You see what's at stake for us. Whenever I've completely blown it and just made a mess of things, my response should not just be, well, I'm just a sinner, and sinners do dumb things. That is true, but that's not it. In fact, that's not what's most important. What I really need to ask myself is, what do I have in the place of God? What is more important to me that I have replaced God with? What is it that I think is so absolutely necessary about this that has me rebelling against the God who has saved me? What has me following after a non-God? Why am I turning back to the stoicheia? What has me doing this? So you see, there's more to preaching to ourselves than saying, don't do that. It's not as simple as I just need to tell myself to stop doing what I'm doing and then I'll just magically stop doing it. I need to ask a bigger question. Why are you doing what you're not supposed to be doing? Why are you doing the wrong thing instead of what's right? And then I have to be honest and answer with the absolute fact that something besides God has taken over my affections. Something other than God is my highest good. There's something other than God that I am adoring. And that's underneath every single sin that I commit. That's what screws you up and that's the reason you do everything that you do. It's the root of your personality. When something good becomes the best, it becomes God to you. It becomes the integrating focus of your personality, and it is why you are the way you are, because you become like what you worship. How is that? How is it that I can know and be known by God? That's the language Paul uses in uh, verse 9 and yet still turn back to weak and worthless elementary principles in the world. He asks that here, not because he doesn't know the answer, but more of a way of questioning them so they'll consider their hearts. How could you is sort of the way he's saying that. But I want to answer the question, how is it possible? They belong to Christ. They are united to Christ by his blood. They are Christians. So how is it even possible that they would have influence in their lives turning back to the stoicheia? How are they being bewitched and enslaved? Now, we've said several times walking through Galatians that as Christians, we have a non-obligation to sin. We are free as Christians to not sin. We will, we do, but because we're united with Christ, we have a transformed nature which allows us to love God, to love his law, to love our neighbors, and to walk in obedience to all that he has commanded of us. 
furthermore, Christ has died on our behalf. On the cross, he crushed the head of the serpent in accordance with Scripture. He's defeated our enemy, giving all who trust in him victory over sin and death. So how is it that we can still be enslaved? Remember the Axis powers of World War II. They were defeated after D-Day, but they continued to fight. There is no mistake that anyone in the supernatural world has the evil powers that have been dealt with by a death blow already. It has happened. Jesus triumphantly, finally, completely, has totally defeated the evil forces of the world on the cross to include death. However, until the Lord cast them all away into the everlasting lake of fire, they continue to wage a losing battle. Why? Because while they may be defeated, they can still take others with them. They can still deliver heavy blows to the church. They can still do damage to local churches and homes and individual lives. And notice Paul is saying to the Galatians, if you go to them, they will enslave you. So how do they do it? The biblical writers use a word over and over again that we don't really have an English equivalent for. It makes perfect sense of it. So it's often translated as something like lust. But in our modern vocabulary, we generally think of lust in terms of sexual desire. That doesn't quite get to the heart of it. One commentator gives what I think is the best word for it when he calls it over-desire. And here's what we need to see. An over-desire is not an oversized desire for something that's bad or evil. But actually, an over-desire is for something good. It may be love, it may be achievement, it may be your child's happiness. You name it, good things can become over-desires. And when that happens, we are completely open to the stoicheia and can become enslaved. There is a real spiritual evil that says, if you want it, you can have it, and then you'll be happy. Remember, this happened with Jesus and Satan in the desert. Satan came to Jesus and said, if you want all of this, you can have it. I'm offering it to you, and if you have it, you will be happy. You will no longer hunger. You will no longer seek to have to achieve power. I'll give you all the nations of the world. He's promising something that he cannot give in return for some kind of happiness. So what happens with us in our hearts when we indulge in an over-desire, we create this delusional, unrealistic world to grasp for. And in doing so, we take normal, good desires and turn them into something that the stoike are just waiting to jump on and slave us by and pull us away from a right relationship to God. So you see, in our hearts, we turn a good desire into an over-desire. And then when we seek to indulge that over-desire, we walk right into a trap that is subtly and craftily set by those forces aligned against us that we might be bound in slavish chains.
So, let me give you an example. We have a lot of new parents and grandparents in our body here, so I think this is a very real danger for us, myself included. A love for our child or grandchild, a desire for them to have a happy, healthy life, can very easily become something that enslaves us. And what I want us to know is that it's not just that our priorities can become a little bit messed up or that we just have a season of life where we focus all of our attention and effort on a new child, but it can actually be something that is evil and can be driven by an over-desire in our hearts that walks us right into the snares of the evil one. So what ends up happening? We end up doing things in the exact opposite way of what God calls us to. And then we find ways to justify all of it because it started out with a desire for something that is good. So in this example, what happens when parents go down that road? They withdraw from community and close themselves out from other people, from the wisdom of others. They become prideful in a way that they do things as opposed to the way other people do things. And they may make biting comments about it. They're comparing themselves and their child to others. They're announcing everything they do to the world about how great and wonderful and perfect this new life is. And all of it is completely oblivious to the fact that the most crucial element of it all is missing a worship of God. And we can predict what the things will be that happen because it is under the influence of all these evil forces opposed to God. So it's going to be the exact opposite of what God desires. But you see, it's tricky, it's sneaky because it's a good thing. But the good thing becomes the greatest thing. And so it becomes our God. And we become enslaved by it. So you see, this isn't just about some pagan Gentiles in the first century. This is about you and me. And it's, it's about never allowing our hearts to be taken captive by an over-desire. Never allowing our actions to follow because we walk into the enslaving forces of evil that await us. I could give you a thousand examples of what this might look like for each of us. You can probably think of some for yourself and your own personal situation. What do you love? What good thing do you desire? There is at least one thing in all of our lives that if we were asked to give it up, we would really struggle. We would really struggle to give it up. Maybe it's something you own, a hobby you have, something. Reason through in your mind how it is that what you love and desire as a good thing can actually become an over-desire that leads you into the trap of the stoicheia. The apostle Peter warns us, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour Now, Paul says something here in verse 10 that's interesting. It may not be what we assume at first. The natural assumption 
is that because the Gentiles are being influenced toward the teaching of the Judaizers, that he's talking just about Jewish festivals and day observances. But remember, again, the context in which Paul is writing here. The Gentiles are turning back to something of their past, right? For many of them, previously, it was a worship of the sun and the moon and the stars, They worship the creation rather than the creator. So the days, months, and seasons, and years that he mentions are those things that are marked out by the sun and the moon and the stars. Now part of their belief system was that these objects had power and control over them and around the world, uh, uh, over the world around them. And Paul is taking aim at this and he's saying, you were enslaved to these things that are non-gods. Now that you've been freed from this, don't go back to it. Don't worry about the times and seasons and days and months and years. If you believe all of this astrology, it will take control over your life because you're assigning it power that it doesn't actually have. And so he's pointing to a very real danger here. Brothers and sisters, I think sometimes we can get very flippant views of the supernatural and we just sort of write things off and we laugh about them. So we kind of are okay or we just sort of dabble with and laugh about things like ghosts and Ouija boards and seances and palm readings and tarot cards and all of this sort of thing. We need to realize that there are real evil powers at work in this world. Real supernatural evil powers. And to open ourselves up to them is to allow ourselves to be enslaved by them. It's not something to joke about or to play with. And there are many examples in Scripture of that very reality. Now, Christians will be protected against the power's worst designs, which are the things that would separate us from Christ completely. Paul promises in Romans 8.35 that even the worst distress or persecution or famine or peril, none of the evil powers will be able to separate true believers from the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So as true believers in Christ, we have the assurance that we are secure in Christ. We will not be taken away finally and completely. However, This is not a free ticket to venture into the world of enslavement, to entertain the elementary principles of the world. There is nothing good there. They will only serve to damage you and to damage your church and to damage your family. Don't turn and be enslaved to those things that are non-gods, but turn to worship the one and only true God who has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. If there is any question whatsoever as to whether or not God loves you as his child, this should answer that for you.
It's amazing to think that one of God's children could venture into an enslavement to those forces that are completely and totally opposed to God in their Christian life and become enslaved for a time to the evil powers and yet still be a child of God who is loved and who will, in the end, be rescued from destruction. We have a great God. He forgives us of so much. Well, Paul ends these verses with a very strong pastoral rebuke as we look at our final point this morning. Paul is really pointing to the fact, in verse 11, that turning away from Christ to other gods may be proof that a person was never united to Christ in the first place. When I moved to Savannah 12 years ago, it was the first time I had ever seen a lighthouse at Tybee Island. They're really very unique structures, and they serve a very important and practical purpose. Lighthouses, with their distinct markings, were placed in desolate places along coastal regions of the world so sailors might know where they were and so that they could avoid dangers. And these vivid beacons were great warning systems designed to keep boats from running aground or breaking up rocks and reefs. Now, Paul has just served as a lighthouse to the Galatians. He's beaming a bright light in order to alert the church about the shallows and the rocks of all that surrounds them and seeks to enslave them. And at the time of Paul's writing to the Galatian church, if we think of her as a ship, she was about to run aground and perhaps be completely destroyed. But Paul is not an impersonal lighthouse, a revolving light in bleak darkness. He is on the shore. He's jumping up and down. He is waving his arms to get their attention and shouting at the top of his voice because the Galatians are headed toward destruction. And he reminds them that God has used them. God has called them. He has brought them into his glorious grace. But he entertains this question. Was it possible that he had labored among them in vain? Is it possible that they're really unconverted? If they continue on their present course, they will prove themselves to be so. He's not saying that they're going to lose their salvation. But by choosing to be enslaved, they may very well be proving themselves to be outside of the kingdom of God in the first place. Paul is saying to the Galatians, you once were slaves and now you are wanting to go back again. How dare you? Are you fools? Have I wasted my breath? Now, here's what's so astounding about it, where it all comes together with everything else Paul has written thus far. Before they were Christians, the Galatians were pagans. They were Greek pagans. They were Greco-Roman people. They were worshiping false gods. They were worshiping idols. They were into all sorts of terrifying, evil things. And everything that's opposed to God was being worked out in their lives day by day. Now remember what it is they're being tempted to. What is the whole reason that Paul has written this letter to the Galatians? 
Again, teachers have come to the Galatians and have said, if you really, really want to be accepted by God, it's not enough that you just believe in Jesus. You have to be very legal. You have to be absolutely moral and believe and do everything according to Jewish law. So they're getting ready to move into a sort of legal moralism. They're going to become more moral and more religious. They're going into something that's very dangerous. Now, here's what we have to realize that Paul is saying. Before they were Christians, the Galatians were doing all of these evil things out in the streets in pagan worship, living lives of complete licentiousness. But now they're about to go into an absolutely rigorous program of utter obedience to the legal details as a way of earning God's favor. And Paul says, you're just going right back to where you were before. How can he say that? That's startling. It is astounding that Paul would say that being incredibly biblical and incredibly moral and having all of your doctrine right and being absolutely pristine, being moral, having your moral scruples, all of that is the same thing as being as enslaved as they were before to all of these pagan practices and non-gods. Why? Because Paul is saying you can either be enslaved to the stoicheia and follow all your over-desires and live under the force of the non-gods, or you can be enslaved to the law which cannot save you while you seek to earn your own favor before God by keeping the law. So instead of following Christ, you're following the law as a means of salvation, And you're actually seeking to be your own Lord and Savior through your obedience to the law. You are just as enslaved. Doesn't matter. Pick non-God, stoicheia, the law. However you want to be enslaved. And you know, the law of God is manipulated by the evil powers arrayed against us. And it becomes one of the most powerful weapons in Satan's arsenal. Why? Because again, we know it's from God, we know it's good, we know it is holy, we know it is perfect, we know it is right, it's a reflection of the character of God, but the law was never intended for your salvation. So, the problem with religious spiritual slavery is worse than the stoicheia. Because you don't know that you're dead. You assume you're walking rightly with God because you have convinced yourself that you're able to keep the law. So we have to ask ourselves some honest questions when we consider the sin in our lives and the pursuit of our over-desires. We need to ask ourselves what Paul is asking the Galatians. How can you go back to slavery when you know God, or rather have been known by God? That's the language Paul uses in verse 9. What he's saying is, what's primary? What makes you a Christian? The primary basic thing is not that you know him, that you have experienced him, that you feel his love, that you're praying to him day and night. That's not what makes you a Christian. Ultimately, what makes you a Christian is that God knows you that God loves you, that God has chosen you and has put his grace and mercy on you. 
So Paul is actually here explaining the way to deal with enslavement to the non-gods. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says, I don't care what you think of me. Well, that's a paraphrase. He says, I care very little if I am judged in any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Here's the connection. Anything we are enslaved to will keep us under judgment. I can be under the judgment of my peers, my religious group, the non-gods I submit to and open myself up to when I walk in a way that invites them into my life. But Paul is saying the gospel is not about your performance. If the gospel to you is your performance, that means nothing. The gospel is performance means nothing, popularity means nothing, those things mean nothing. What matters is that God knows you. It's what God thinks of you and what God thinks of you more specifically in Jesus Christ. You see, Paul is like a laser beam. He thinks about this all the time. And as a result, he laughs in the face of anything else that comes along. Criticism, what people think. You notice as you read about Paul and what he's written, he's not up and down based on what people are thinking about him and doing to him. He's focused on one thing, the true gospel. The important thing is not that I know God, but that God knows me. My knowledge of God goes up and down all of the time, but his knowledge of me is absolute. It is permanent. It is fixed. It is unchanging. The Lord says, I will never, ever, ever forsake you. But then the other part of this is you do have to know God. Ultimately, it's not enough just to tell yourself over and over again that it's, that it's that you're not good enough or that you're not the best thing. It's not just looking at your desires and saying, you're a good thing, but you're not the best thing. I don't need you. I have Jesus. Now, that works sometimes in a pinch. It's helpful When you're feeling like, I have to do this, how can I get control of my life in the midst of temptation and sin? You have to find your desire that is becoming your over-desire. You have to look at it in the face, and you have to say, I don't need you, not when I have Jesus. But ultimately, you have to know God. And I know God through his word and through prayer and through all the varied means of grace that he has provided that I can draw near to him. And so the call to us is to go and get him, to go to him. He may do all sorts of things in our lives, but it's not because he wants to see us squirm. Everything he has done in your life because he knows you is so that you can know more of him. And only by knowing him will you be able to say, forget it to the stoicheia, to a legal way of life, and to these over-desires that are constantly seeking to arise in your hearts. Brothers and sisters, that is good news for all of us. We need not be enslaved 
to our over-desires, to the evil powers and principalities of the world, or to the law. And friends, some of you here this morning are enslaved. Quite simply, if you are not in Jesus Christ, you are enslaved to something. And the call to you from God, from his word, is to turn from all that you were enslaved to, to look to the one true and living God in whom there is life everlasting, to repent of your sin, to believe on Christ, and to live forever with him. When Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, died, they found a piece of paper in his diary. It was a little loose piece of paper. He'd written on it, and he used it, it seems like a bookmark, and he moved it every day so that as he was reading, he always saw these words. It was just these verses. O Jesus, make thyself to me a living, bright reality, more present to faith's vision keen than any outward object seen, more dear, more intimately nigh than even the sweetest earthly tie. Every single day, Hudson Taylor was asking for Jesus's reality in his life. He was saying, that's the only way I'm ever going to be free from everything that is trying to enslave me. If you take that prayer and you go to him every day with it, you will meet him. He's not going to drag his feet. Don't drag yours. Don't turn to the elementary enslaving powers of the world. Turn to Jesus Christ. Delight yourself in him alone and he will give you the right and true desires of your heart. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that by your power and through your word and by the Holy Spirit within us and by and because of what Christ has accomplished for us that we can proclaim victory over all that seeks to ensnare us. Lord, the temptations are great. The power of evil is out there. And we pray, God, that you would help us to keep our eyes focused on Jesus Christ. That we not turn back to the enslaving elementary principles of the world. That we not worship the non-gods. But that we rest fully and finally and completely in Jesus Christ. I pray, God, that as we sin that these questions would come to mind, that we would deal honestly and truthfully, not just with the reality of who we are in our flesh as sinners, but more importantly, that we would go after understanding what it is that we are tempted to be enslaved to. May we identify it and reject it that we not be enslaved, but that we walk in the freedom that is ours in Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the warnings that come by your word, that we might know true holiness and godliness. And Lord, we thank you for your love, that even in our sin, we know 
that we are forgiven, that we are loved, that we are yours. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.